0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 18. It's been a little while in the morning since we've been in Leviticus. I think the last time was 17, when we talked about how God and his commands for Sunday carry over into the Monday and through the rest of the week. And in 18 through 20, there's a specific emphasis on holiness, with, with chapter 19 being the center, and then 18 and 20 are in many ways parallel. Uh, Chapters saying many of the same things, reinforcing that. And what we're going to do today is I'll read just the first two verses from chapter 19 to remind us of the central part of these chapters. And then the first part of 18, which reminds us of our relationship with God, that he is the Lord and that he sets boundaries and his ownership for us. And then I'm going to read the specific commands today. Only one verse from chapter 18 and one verse from chapter 20. Now I ask for your prayers, for your heart to listen, for your willingness to hear. What God's word says today would get me booed out of many places. But this is God's word, and not mine. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, we we listen to his word, and we yearn for it. Let us hear what the Lord says to us, starting Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Moving to chapter 18. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If the person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And in the following verses, which we read in the previous sermon in the evening, the Lord talks about various aspects of idolatry and especially sexual relationships which damage the community, his honor, and the family, And we're going to read verse 22. The Lord says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Going over to chapter 20, verse 13. The Lord says, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be surely put to death. Their blood is upon them. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Fathers, we come to your word, which speaks clearly to us today, perhaps all the more clearly when the world says the exact opposite. We ask for your spirit to be upon us, that we would know how to act, to be wise and brave and bold and loving. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for Christmas, one of my friends gave me a wonderful gift basket beautiful liquor basket full of all kinds of good things, a a musical CD that had been recorded by his wife playing some of her own music, um, some some chutney and uh, some wonderful shortbread and then this delicious almond cake, slices on top, layered and, and packaged so nicely with a bow. Now, can you imagine if this week, my friend came over to my house and as he came in, he saw holding open one of my doors, the basket with a whole bunch of broken cinder box blocks piled in it. He said, is that, is that the gift basket? I said, oh, yes, I found it very useful for holding open doors with the cinder blocks. So, oh, okay, well, well, what about the baked goods? I said, well, you know, I took them over to Russ Bowl's house and we fed their chickens and they absolutely loved it. And the CD? Well, then I went to Jason Harrison's house, and we went out back, and we used it for target practice. Excellent for a bullseye. Now, some of you might say, Pastor Andrew, I'm never giving you a gift basket again. Would my friend have a right to be upset? Or could I say, well, what's your problem? After all, you gave the gift back to to me. It's, It's mine. I'm not hurting you, am I? I'm not hurting anyone, am I? Well, what might be the response? Well, Andrew, those things had a purpose, and you ruined them. Andrew, we, we had a relationship. And you have a responsibility to enjoy them in a way that, that respects the love and intention that I had as the giver. Now, that is admittedly a bit of an absurd illustration, but it provides an entry point into our scripture today. God has given you and me the gift of your life, and you cannot just do anything that you want with it. He's created you for a purpose. And like the gift basket, you are responsible to, to live according to his design. And unlike the gift basket, which was beautiful, but a rather small thing, living as holy to your God will require incredible sacrifice from you and from each one of you. And the point of this sermon today, God's word for you is that holiness requires Sacrifice. Holiness requires sacrifice. Now, what is holiness or sanctification, as we read? We've had several sermons in this now where you are set apart for God to become more like God so that you can enjoy God. Right? You, are, you are devoted or set apart as special belonging to the Lord. Right? There's, a, there's a profound relationship with you and God if you belong to Jesus. So that you can become more like him, made more in his image, or as Leviticus will say, to love what God loves and hate what he hates. So that you can enjoy life with God. God is very clear that you can't earn your salvation by what you do. But, but if someone has been truly born again, has eternal life, then, then they're going to be growing more and more like Christ and hating their sins more and more. And, and one day you will be transformed so that you'll be perfectly holy. And the goal of your holiness is to enjoy God. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And today we're examining that call to holiness to love what God loves and hate what God hates, we're going to look at one specific command, one specific command, no homosexual relations or relationships. Now some of you might be asking what this is. you may be your younger kids um, you hear homosexual relationships, same-sex relationships. I'm just going to give a broad definition where where a man and a man or a woman and a woman engage in certain activities, special activities that God said is only for a man and a woman who are married. So why preach on this today? And is this even fair, picking out this one verse? Why, why these two verses in Leviticus? Well, this is one of the areas, the sin, that our society now celebrates. I mean, all the main centers of power celebrate same-sex relationships. It's the identity of choice, right? You, you go to the states, you go to the libraries, you go to the schools, you look at businesses, you look at the military, you look at sports teams. You know that there's there's used to be Pride Day and and then it's month and now it wants to be Pride season. You see a creep in in religions and you see you see this in the Roman Catholic Church. And we'd have many disagreements with the church. But one that we thought we had in common was that marriage is between a man and a woman. And while they still they still currently say that the pope is refusing to excommunicate certain bishops who are acting against that. He issued some statements recently that are confusing at best. Moving closer to home, certainly not reformed, but within, at least would confess himself as an evangelical pastor, Andy Stanley. Well, he says, yes, marriage is between a man and a woman. He's a well-known pastor. His, his church network probably has as many people in it as our denomination. He, he had a, 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 a conference where he was helping young people come to grips with their same sex attractions. And yet he invited two men who were in a married relationship to speak because They understood where the boys were and the girls were, but we don't want them to go there. It's very confusing. As a former youth leader in my previous church, an OPC church 15 years ago, on the chats where probably their parents didn't know where they were talking, openly questioning, does the Bible really teach that this is a sin? I can say that I know young people in our denomination have walked away from the faith, and one of the reasons they give is that the church is not loving to the people in the LGBT community because they will not celebrate their lifestyle. And even if it seems far removed to you, you as grandparents or or parents will have children or grandchildren who are wrestling with those desires. It would not surprise me if there was someone today who felt the pool of same-sex attraction. And I will just say, this sermon is for you. God's word is for you. That your identity in Christ is, is what is first, and he loves you enough to call you to a holy lifestyle. And even none of you say, none of this is for me. I say it's still for you, because Jesus has called all of us, every Christian, to radical sacrifice. And when you see the sacrifice Jesus demands in this commandment, you can't help but consider, well, what, what does King Jesus require of me? So we've set the groundwork for the sermon today, and here's where we're going to go. First of all, we're going to examine this specific requirement for holiness, no homosexual relations, and then in light of that, consider Jesus' demand for every Christian. So let's look at the command. Rever- read verse 18, chapter 18, verse 22 again. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now, 30 years ago, I could have quoted this verse. And at least for people who called themselves Christians, this would settle it next. But there are many questions today about this text because taking God at his word has become more and more unpopular. Excuse me. Now, some questions I don't have time to answer. There's a lot of gotcha questions and what about and and, and trying to maybe just get out of something people don't want to accept. If you have questions I don't answer today, I welcome what I call those coffee conversations. Get a cup of coffee or tea or come over and talk with Elizabeth and me or, or Pastor Peter. And we can go through God's word and tell you, show you what, it, what, what he says. But there are two main questions about this issue, sometimes asked honestly, that I think it's good to answer. I want to arm you and I want to see how you have sure answers in God's word, especially if you're going to sacrifice for taking a stand. You need to be convicted this is what it says. So question number one, does this command even apply to us anymore today? Um, There's a very helpful little book called What the Bible Really Says About Homosexuality by Kevin DeYoung. I'd recommend it to you if if you want to dig deeper. I'm going to be relying on some of what he says for the chapter of Leviticus. It's a good little chapter right here. And listen to this paragraph. I'm going to quote him because I think he very sympathetically sums up the objection someone who might not think that this command applies anymore. So what if Leviticus says homosexual practice is wrong? Leviticus says a lot of goofy things. What about charging interest on a loan? What about wearing clothes with two kinds of fabric? What about eating bacon? What about having sex with your wife during her monthly period? Aren't we guilty of picking and choosing which commands still matter? Listen to this. This is the core of it. How can two little verses in a book full of commands we constantly ignore, have any abiding relevance for the church today? How can two little verses have any abiding relevance for the church today? And I will say, as a note, as someone who's worked with young people and as a chaplain, This line of questioning is very persuasive to to many young people, especially if you have only a surface knowledge of the scripture or some people will say subscribe to moralistic, therapeutic deism, which basically means I believe that God is a big grandfather in the sky who is there to just help me live my best life and doesn't ask anything of me. Well, how might you respond to this question? Sometimes maybe honestly asked the first response is commands in Leviticus apply to us today. Unless God tells us otherwise. And I would say, if someone says, well, what, a, what if it does it apply to so be careful what you wish for? Look at Leviticus 9, 19, 11. Next chapter over, it says, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. Do those still apply today? I certainly hope so. What if you go to Leviticus 19, 18? The, maybe the most quoted uh, Old Testament passage in Jesus, that when it comes to God's law, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Here you go. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Does that not apply today? You would think so. It's much better to say, it's much wiser to say that these commands apply unless God tells us otherwise. Number two. Not only does the Apostle Paul also condemn homosexuality when talking to a Gentile audience, not a Jewish audience because they already read the Old Testament and believe that, but when talking to a Gentile audience, he directly draws from these two verses in Leviticus when he does so. 1 Corinthians 6.9, 1 Timothy 1.10, both verses, there's lists of sins that go against God's boundaries, his, his law. And one of the, the sins in the lists is translated by the ESV, men who practice homosexuality. Well, that is a new word. Most people believe the apostle Paul created that word. And how did he create it? Well, if you go back to the two verses that we read and you go to the Greek Old Testament, it was translated so that the Jews who spoke Greek could read their Bible. You take the Greek word there for man and the Greek word there for bed which are very close to each other, and you combine them to get the word that the Apostle Paul makes that says, men who practice homosexuality. He is, he is creating his law, his, his, his ruling, right from these verses. That's about as strong as you can get as an endorsement that the Apostle Paul says, this still matters. I'll just address one objection. What about verse 19? You can read it, verse 19 in Leviticus 18. What about verse 19? Pastor Andrew, that's, that's just a few verses away from the verse that you read, and that's no longer forbidden. Now, there's a long discussion we could have about this, but if you remember from well, a couple months ago, in the Old Testament, there, there were moral and ceremonial uncleanness. In, in Leviticus, there were, in that time period, under God's law, there was certain bodily functions for men and for women and sicknesses, that served as living examples that God's people needed to be made clean from their sins, right? Going from, from uncleanness, which was, was death and sickness and decay, to, to cleanness and holiness, life and all that's good and pure. And so the New Testament makes it clear that these laws, when they were those ceremonial ones or civil, they no longer apply because of Jesus' work. Now we focus on the moral law, which sexual acts, homosexual acts are certainly part of that. I think it's also important, if you notice in chapter 20, there was a death penalty. What do we do with that today? Um, What it does show is that God took it very seriously in the Old Testament. But again, that was a civil law. That was for the nation state of Israel. That, That no longer applies. What instead applies is removal from the church. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. When a Christian is openly practicing incest, which is also condemned in this passage, he says, remove them from the church to show them the severity of their sins. As we look in general, then, I would just say that when you look at Scripture, and just a final reply, the entire storyline of the Bible is driven by marriage, as defined between a man and a woman. Scripture begins with marriage in the garden, Adam and Eve, And ends with one in the new heavens and the new earth, Christ and his church. You cannot avoid this clear framing which helps us interpret the rest of Scripture. And everywhere, Scripture speaks highly of marriage. And everywhere, it condemns homosexual relationships. It calls it an abomination in the Old Testament, in Leviticus. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 calls it dishonorable passions, shameless acts. Now, people will say, it's complicated. Well, just because something is complex... Does not mean it isn't clear. As an illustration for the Christmas Eve service, we visited my home church and behind the pulpit there was a cross, very tastefully placed. And as we went to sit down, my three-year-old Rachel looked up and said, Daddy, look, cross. I said, yes, Rachel. What does the cross mean? And she said, Jesus, Jesus died for our sins. Now, I can tell you that Rachel could not explain to me all the aspects of Jesus' work and the atonement and all of that goes into it. That's complex, what Jesus did on the cross. But even a three-year-old knew the core truth. And the same is here. My six-year-old Sam might not be able to tell you all the ins and outs of this command, but he can tell you that God created marriage for a man and a woman and nothing else. God's word is very clear. It does apply today. So the second question that you will often hear is, is this loving or or is this fair? Now, there are Christians who call themselves Christians who will say this. Well, my God is a God of love. He wouldn't do this. Or how can someone deny the the passions of someone made in the image of God? There's even a a church leader well high in the Anglican church said to deny gay people this would be to deny them full abundance of life. Some strong wording there. In other words, God's word can't say what it says because that wouldn't be loving. Well, how do we answer that? I think first it's helpful to ask a counter-question. Is the gospel costly? Is the good news of Jesus costly? What does Jesus demand of men and women who believe in him? Everything. I want you to think about this command and what it costs. me. Let's look at that by looking at two scenarios. Imagine we had an unmarried uh, man and woman. They're living together uh, and they come to faith church and they hear God's word and and they place their faith in Christ and they're convicted of their sins. What does their repentance look like? Most likely there would be a need to separate. But there's a possibility that one day they, they could be joined in marriage. What if a gay couple came to faith church? They are, they are married according to the definition of the state. Maybe they've even had Christians that have told them that their relationship is beautiful and pleases God. And they think that. And then they hear God's word and they're convicted that their relationship is sinful. What does repentance look like there? It means upending your life in every aspect. It means rejecting something that you claim was a core part of your identity. It means separating from who may be your best friend. It means ending a relationship with a person that you love, whom you've pledged yourself to. It means that you've become connected to their family and, 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 and now you're not in some way. It means legal complications. And the list goes on. Many of you may know of Rosaria Butterfield, a tenured professor in queer theory at Syracuse who came to know the Lord over two years of evangelism and hospitality by a pastor. She was, she was living with her lesbian lover. They owned a home together. Writes much about this, paraphrasing. She said, some people describe their conversion as a, as a beautiful thing, a wonderful thing. My conversion was a train wreck. Necessary. An act of God, but a train wreck. And I think we in the church, if this is not your fight, it can be easy to be callous and say, the Bible is true, go and sin no more. True words. But is it costly? Yes. And I think before we answer the question about is it loving, it, it is compassionate to acknowledge how costly this command can be. But is it loving? Is it loving to call a person to repent of same-sex relation in the Yes, it is. And I'll give you three reasons why. At first, God designed you for a beautiful purpose. And that's why I began with the story about the basket. There's a a gift with a purpose that's connected to a relationship. And God says, I created you and your bodies matter. They are not like the Amazon packaging that you come and you rip up and you throw aside to get what you really want. Or if you're my kids, they might use them for fencing or sliding down steps or, or whatever. Your body is part of who you are as an image bearer of God. And as men and women, God has made us to, to, to show this truth in a certain way. Sam Albury, and I also believe um, Christopher Ashe, would say that marriage between a man and a woman shows the shape of God's relationship. A man and a woman married act as the picture of Jesus and his church, especially in the future. Men and women who are single show the sufficiency of the relationship of Christ. of of waiting for Christ, of yearning for his return. Either way, God has made you, God has designed you to fulfill a purpose in your body that proclaims the truth. And anything outside of this goes against his will and his offense to God as the good creator. And so, don't neglect God's good purpose for your body. The second is that God will judge sinners who do not repent of their sin. It is a very serious thing to continue an active rebellion against the Holy God. Now, it is one thing to struggle with a sin and to fall into that sin and and to repent and ask for forgiveness. That is the Christian life. And It is one thing to experience same-sex attractions and, and, and to repent of those and to fight of them. It is very different to take a sin that God calls an abomination and to celebrate it and to say, this is the abundant life that God is talking about. Not only is that sinful, but that is a proud arrogance that declares to God, God, you said don't do this, but I say I will. And by the way, you had better like it. That is the height of rebellious pride towards your creator. That is joining Adam and Eve in the garden to snatch the fruit. Lewis Meade said this. He said, pride is turning down God's invitation to be a creature in his garden. And wishing instead to be the creator, independent, reliant on your own resources. And God must judge rebellious sinners. The book of Revelation, at the very end, in contrast to Jesus and his bride, his church, his people, describe the people who are outside the city of God, outside of heaven. In other words, will be eternally judged in hell. And this is what it says in Revelation twenty-two fifteen. It says, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Jesus, our Lord, we read it earlier, Matthew five twenty five. if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. For sake of your soul, it is loving to call people to repentance. And then finally, Jesus decides, desires you to live with him. What are the points of God's commands of no homosexual relations? I talk to a lot of young people and they don't understand. They feel like God's being arbitrary. Like, I want you to hop five times on your right foot on Mondays just because I want to see you jump. No, no, not at all. It is it's the same as all of Leviticus. To live with and to know God. That's what holiness is about. To, to be brought back to the garden. Right? To, the, to be brought into his sanctuary. Fellowship with the God who, who redeemed you and reflecting his glory. And to do that, you must repent and turn from your sin to someone who is in a same-sex relationship. Jesus would look at them and say, you cannot have your partner and me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. Follow me. And so is this loving? To call someone to live according to God's good design. To be saved from God's wrath forever. To live in his presence for all eternity. That is true compassion. Now, of course, we need to love our brothers and sisters who are struggling with same-sex attraction. And we can admit that there have been times when the church has done a very poor job of that. We must welcome them into the church. We must be a listening ear. We must never look down on them or or create any kind of second-class citizens. But we also must never dare do, as someone said of Andy Stanley, try to be more compassionate than Jesus with confusion or maybe even overtly encourage their sin. The world says this is true life. In this case, sexual identity. Jesus says it leads to death. We sang about the world in the first hymn. What's lest with all her pomp unfurled, she betray and cheat thee. This is one of the ways the world is trying to cheat us. It is a false hope. And if this is your battle today, I say to you, the most loving thing that God can say is from Hebrews, to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And, and You have freedom in Christ as you obey Him. You are not worse off than any other sinner. Each one of us needs the radical life-changing grace of Jesus. Each one of us is bent in a certain way, away from God. As, as we, we read in the Confessions, we, we, the, the dominion of sin is broken, but it's not completely gone, so we still have ways that we're walking around with, with sprained ankles or, 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 or we're out of alignment. Each one of us, has indwelling sin to fight. And it's not true life is not to celebrate that bentness, but rather the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3.5, to put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly among you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. And this is God's call for you, to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. But this sermon is for everyone holiness requires sacrifice, and not just for a specific few it 's for every follower of Jesus. same sex attraction it may not be your particular bent, but you still must sacrifice now there 's two reasons for this sermon: one is to clearly proclaim god 's will in a, in a world that is celebrating the exact opposite, but the other is for you as his believers to see the radical cost of discipleship now I hope those of you, perhaps you say, this isn't my struggle. You already see how this passage applies to your life. As, as you see the cost of Jesus' call for your brothers and sisters with same sex attraction, I pray you're saying, if that's what Jesus demands for them, what does he demand for me? Right, this command is not just some abstract argument disconnected from you, it shows you the cost of following Jesus for everyone. Jesus says to you, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's for everyone. Take up your cross and follow me. That's for everyone. So let me ask you Does following Jesus mean sacrifice for you? Let me just list some basics. Are you faithfully attending in Sunday worship? Are you faithfully giving your tithes, 10% of your income, and, and your offerings to the Lord? Are you taking respectful, principled stands? For God's truth at work or in the community, wherever he puts you, even though it will cost you. Now, these are all basic commands, can be clearly demonstrated from Scripture. And and I list them because in each one, you show your devotion to Jesus through sacrifice. That he's your first love. That he's your highest allegiance. I'll tell you, if you are not faithful in these areas, it shows that you're in great spiritual danger. And you need to repent. Ask you this, are there, are there areas of sin in your life that you know that you just will not touch? Outbursts of ungodly anger. We read about that earlier our Lord's teaching. Maybe you've made your career an idol. You're addicted to alcohol or food. You're ensnared by pornography or you're trapped by the, the greed of money. Or maybe it's just the influence in the world. Something good but it's taken first place in grace and you know it's bad for you. You know it is. But you refuse to deal with it. The Lord calls you too to holiness, to love what He loves and hate what He hates, and not to give up or turn a blind eye on those sins in your life, but to do battle and put them to death. You see the call to holiness, it's not an abstract command for a few sinners, but the heartbeat of Jesus' Church. Oh, to be like him. Oh to be more like the Savior. And one of the marks of a true believer of Jesus is that you have felt the cut of the surgeon's life. The spiritual amputation is he's removing from you what is ungodly and what is not pleasing to him. Right? That, time, that, that process where God through the Spirit helps you put to death the deeds of your flesh. And you know what? It hurts. Doesn't it? It hurts. It's painful to go against your flesh. It it fights and claws and screams. If you're an alcoholic, it it hurts to refuse to give in. If you like to say those little zingers that, that cut people down, a little part of you dies when you refuse to indulge in that. It can hurt to follow God's call for you if he calls you to be single when you want to be married. It could hurt to follow God's call for you to be a parent if you love your career, whether you're a man or a woman. It could hurt simply to fast and pray and seek God because we are hyper-connected to our digital world of ours these days. I'll tell you, anyone following Jesus knows the excruciating pain of putting to death the deeds of your sinful nature. This is far more than just a few sins over here. And so I'll ask you, is this you? Can you point to areas in your life where, yes, by God's grace, I bear the scars where God is removing my sinful deeds. Of course, this doesn't mean that you've attained perfection. But again, if if you can't point to areas where your life shows a a definite change as a result of following Jesus, you should be concerned. At best, this means you are spiritually sick. At, At worst, you're in danger of judgment. All who follow Christ must feel the healing pain of the surgeon's knife. The beauty is that the surgeon is your father and he operates for your own good. As a cancer patient, praise God, I'm in remission, but I have quite a few new scars on my body from various procedures and putting life-saving devices in and taking them out. Those scars represent for me life. They represent healing. And so it is for everyone who takes up their cross and follows Jesus, who submits to his rule and admits, I am not my own, like it is with the basket. I realize that I have a purpose, and by God's grace, I want to live out purpose that purpose through radical sacrifice. And when you do that, you're going to see Jesus in his beauty. Leviticus points us to the one who is perfectly holy and sacrificed for us. And you say, how, how is it that Jesus can ask you to give up everything? Well, simply he's, he's done it for you. The sinless, sinless savior who died a cursed death far greater than you could bear to bring you life. Jesus says, I not only does he say, I, I follow me, but I, I died for you. What other God, what other ruler, whatever boss will say that. And so we see in Scripture true life is not by indulging brief pleasures in your sinful nature, but it starts now with Christ's. Continues into eternity. And how do you fight those sinful events? When they scream and they cry and they demand fulfillment. You look to Christ. Your Savior who's given himself for you. It, it also is worth saying that for Christians, looking to Jesus means experiencing his love for the church as well. It's not a sermon on hospitality. But you can't love people well who have given up Everything. And have left nothing except Jesus without welcoming them into your homes and lives. And perhaps for some of you, that is where God calls you to sacrifice as you open up your homes. Jesus' gospel requires sacrifice, but it's because he loves us. May we see the joy of holiness and strive for it, since Jesus has given himself for us, made by his grace, we live lives of sacrifice for Him. Please pray with me, Father. We pray that praise You that we stand on the rock that is Jesus, in a world that that is radically confused, that celebrates it seems more and more all of the wrong things. We can look to Your Word. We can look to the generations of Christians who faithfully held to it before, and and with confidence, and with boldness, and love continue unwavering following christ and at the same time being reminded that we have we are great sinners and so we have in our own lives such a wonderful savior would you grant us the grace to put to death the sins in our own life this week we pray this in jesus name amen